Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. I am sorry for the long uh, time period between shows. Um, my st- my system is still not completely fixed, so um, in the event that I get a blue screen of death, uh, then you will know that that's why the show suddenly got quiet. I apologize to the users for forgetting to set up the chat room. I am a little bit rusty. Um, the BDOS, or the, the blue screen of death problem will be solved soon enough. Um, the chat room is now open. Um, on today's show, I have a distinguished panel of really distinguished people who are here on D-Radio. Um, some of your favorites. It's an all-star cast of amazing conversationalists. Um, I'm going to start with um, the man who refuses to give an introduction, uh, Chibi, say hello to the audience. Hello. <laughs> um, and uh, I think I don't think I've ever had you on before, Matt. But uh, you know, we have Gangrene. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell them how you became involved in the movement and what you do for the movement now. I'm Matthew Wagner. Um, I work with the Ohio chapter. I'm the Ohio chapter organizer. Um, I got involved with the movement. Um, a little bit before Addendum came out, and uh, been uh, working with that ever since. Good. You're the head of the Ohio chapter, aren't you? Right. Yeah, that's right. I just thought okay. the organizer. Okay. And it's, uh, this is the guy, by the way, whose donation to V Radio was to take me to Venus, Florida, so I highly appreciate that. It was an amazing trip. You're welcome. Um, and uh, next we're going to go to James Cavanaugh of Ireland. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hello, I think this will be an introduction to a few of your panelists as well. Uh, my name is James, I'm from the Zeitgeist Ireland chapter. Uh, I'm also an organizer for the sub-chapter in Dublin. Uh, I got, I pretty much just got involved via addendum, no real interesting story there, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that's easy enough. Um, and finally, uh, Douglas Mallet. is that how you say your name, Doug? Mallet, kind of rhymes with the shaver. Okay, Douglas Millett, uh engineer who works with NASA. One of the guys, one of my guests that I had was one of my, like one of the most popular V radio shows. By all means, introduce yourself, Doug. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Douglas Millett. I'm a systems engineer with the Space Shuttle Program. Not directly for NASA, but we all work in the same building. Uh, I'm the one who made Awakening, uh, the one who made our technical reality. I'm the one who basically tries my best to bring the science and engineering aspect of the project directly to everybody's front door. Excellent. Well, it's great to have you today. Um, and I guess now we'll be looking at uh, something that we don't generally talk about, obviously, you know, in, in your aspect. But I kind of like to have panelists from different walks of life as well. I like to have more international panelists. Unfortunately, it, it's, it's getting harder and harder to find people from Europe. So thank you for coming on, James. I really appreciate it. And if I'm ever in Dublin yeah, again... I've, I've actually been beginning to wonder where everybody's gone over here. Uh, uh, I, can understand, I can understand the scarcity on your show. Everybody seems to have left. Well, it's just it's basically a situation of, I guess, they just don't want to stay up that late. I mean, I, I still talk to people from you know, all over Europe. It's just that you know, I, since I do my show at 9 p.m., now, anyway, my time, because I have my kids and I put them to bed at 8, so um, it, it's been harder to secure them. I usually get Gilbert, you know, he's from the Netherlands, and you know, I like, like to have, like, the old days when we had those uh, panelists that were, like, one from, you know, one was, each one was from a different country, so. But um, in any case, uh, 
Today, the first part of the topic we're going to be talking about actually is just something that I need to kind of remind everybody about. If you had previously registered for the Boston Tea Party, the Resource-Based Economy Caucus is running three candidates, two of which happen to be on this call. Um, the Boston Tea Party is not the Tea Party that you heard about in the, you know, in the news. It has nothing to do with that. It's actually been around for a long time. It's a... Uh, a Tea Party that was formed, like a smaller party that was formed uh, kind of as a protest to some of the things going on in the Libertarian Party as it slowly turns itself into another neoconservative party. Um, and uh, I had been part of it back when I was a Libertarian. Um, I still consider myself a Libertarian overall. I just, it's my economic views have changed a great deal. Um, and uh, so I got asked to be part of the national committee of that party, and uh, their platform is very simple. It's basically just, it literally is like one sentence. We just support, you know, reducing the size and scope of government um, in all ways, essentially. You can look it up on Boston T, like Boston is in the place, T is in the drink, dot U.S., um, right now, the membership is closed because there's a convention going on, and therefore there's an election going on, a couple of elections. Uh, myself, Mr. Wagner, and um, uh, you may know may have known him as Adrian on Ventrilo and Teamspeak is also running for you know at-large national committee membership positions. Now I know that we don't endorse the political system, but essentially the Resource-Based Economy Caucus, um, a caucus is a movement within a party to kind of you know bring about certain specific issues to the forefront. Um, and our solution to eliminating the, the power of government is the resource-based economy. Um, this uh, caucus uh, was, in fact, you know, endorsed by the Venus Project since basically all we're using the political system for is a sounding board to get out our ideas. Uh, particularly in the third-party world, um, we actually have a lot of Green Party members, for example, in the Michigan Zeitgeist chapter. Um, and it's because there are some people in the third-party world who actually give a damn. That's actually where, in my opinion, most of the people who give a damn come from is the people who are already thinking outside the box. They're looking for solutions, and now we give them the resource-based economy as a much more viable solution. But when you enter into the realm of politics with that in mind, you get to basically get to the ears of a lot of people who actually care. It's much easier to get these people to listen to you. I mean, even in the Libertarian Party, it's easier to get people to look at these ideas um, because of the fact that they're already thinking outside the box or they wouldn't be a member of the Green Party or the Boston Tea Party or the Libertarian Party um, and also, as uh, my friend um, Brian Moore, who is the Socialist Party candidate, pointed out, um, I've actually had him on the show a couple of times um, back in my uh, older V radio days. Um, he pointed out that you know the Socialist Party has never gotten anybody elected, but um, when they run a good campaign, it causes other parties to either absorb their ideas or lose votes to them. Um, he credits the Socialist Party, for example, with a lot of the changes that came about in the Democratic Party and the reason why Democrats are often called socialists now. Um, so just something to consider. Basically, if you had joined the Boston Tea Party previously, you know, we need you to vote for these candidates. Um, I started a forum post about it to identify the three of us. Um, you can find it at bostontea.us. You do have to be a United States citizen to help, of course. Um, and, you know, do this if you do agree with the platform of reducing the size, power, and scope of government in all ways and in all forms, um, particularly, obviously, if you're, you know, interested in the Resource-Based Economy Caucus, which I basically developed the platform for by taking one of Jacques' um, essays and turning it into a platform for, you know, a political movement. Um, and uh, 
that's basically it on that. Um, I was disappointed that they had closed membership, but I understand why they do that. It's because people will make proxy accounts and things like that to, uh, you know, to skew elections. So in any case, um, even if you, uh, you know, can't participate in this election, the Boston Tea Party does get some national um, attention. And perhaps, for example, if we were to ever run a presidential candidate on their ticket, that candidate wouldn't be invited in the mainstream debates, but they would be invited into a lot of other debates. And that's, once again, an example of how partisan third-party politics work. You don't really ex ever expect to be elected. You expect to get attention for your ideas. When I ran as a libertarian, I never expected I was going to ever win, but I did get invited to a lot of forums, debates. I was on television. I was on radio. And all because I was one of these candidates. Um, these are opportunities that we could easily use to spread the word about the resource-based economy concept and the Venus Project. So that's essentially what we're doing here. Um, some of you may remember, I can't remember if it was on either Peter's show or when, when I was on Peter's show or when he was on my show, but we discussed the fact that you can use aspects of the political system as a sounding board or a soapbox, and he did agree with me in the end. Um, so that being said, um, we're going to get into... Uh, some of the stuff here about this. Oh, that was the other thing. Look for the third parties in your own country. I just saw somebody mention Canada. I once, for example, had Connie Fogel of the Canadian Action Party. Uh, she was kind of like the Canadian Ron Paul. She had a lot of the same concerns that Ron Paul pointed out um, about their country and how they were losing their sovereignty, things like that. You know, These parties exist everywhere. I don't know what the Green Party is like in other countries, but I know they have a lot of chapters. Um, they also have a lot of things in common with us. For those of you who would like to hear more about that, if you go to my archives at v-radio.org, um, we have a show called The Venus Project and the Green Party where we sit and discuss and talk about the similarities between the Green Party's platform here in the United States and the Venus Project. So um, that being said, um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, get started on the other major subject here, um, unless anybody on the call had a question about the caucus. Oops, that would be a no. For those of you who would like to read along, um, these two articles that I have selected are on the subject of the um, effects of the monetary system on the issue of divorce. You can go to v-radio.org and read the blog there. Um, I took one article from Jet Magazine and another article from, well, let me look. I think I had it. It's, it's all quoted in here somewhere, but when we read it, basically, you can, you can check it out from there. But uh, the, uh, basically, we're going to do what we normally do. We call the, you know, I, I read from the blog, and then we have discussion and go from there. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start reading, and then we'll get ready to go. The Monetary System and Divorce. In this blog, I will be pulling from other blog sources that cite statistics about how the leading cause of divorces and domestic strife come from money problems or stress related to them. We will be talking about this on an upcoming episode of E-Radio, that being this episode. From Jet Magazine, money enables people to buy many things. Unfortunately, it can't buy happiness, love, or a lasting relationship. And surprisingly, money turns out to be the leading cause of today's divorces. 57% of divorced couples in the United States cited financial problems as the primary reason for the demise of their marriage. According to a survey conducted by Citibank, financial incompatibility is one of the ways of explaining the reason money is the primary cause of divorce, says Cheryl B. Russard, 
a registered investment advisor and author of the book, The Black Woman's Guide to Financial Independence, Smart Ways to Take Charge of Your Money, Build Wealth, and Achieve Financial Security. Financial compatibility, quote, has a lot to do with how people are raised, end quote, cites Bressard, who is the principal of Bressard and Douglas Incorporated, located in Palo Alto, California. Quote, women want an equal partnership, but men want to take the lead if that's how they were raised, end quote. The corrupting effect financial incompatibility has on a marriage is compounded when couples don't discuss their financial problems. Bressard says people aren't discussing finances. Money is such a taboo subject. People associate bad things with money. If you're in a serious relationship, talk about this. If you don't, it will cause a huge gap, end quote. Bonnie Fitch, an attorney from Houston, Texas, who is a former associate municipal court judge, says money may be the leading cause of divorce because some couples do not unite and work together when it comes to handling their household finances. The unequal division of money causes problems because control isn't equal. One person will have, a, will have control and more money than the other. If one person is mismanaging funds, the strain comes when it doesn't benefit the other party. It puts a strain on who will be the person to handle the finances, end quote. Asserts Fitch, who is the sole practitioner of her own firm, Problems also occur within a marriage when spouses' egos get in the way, insists Fitch. She says that in today's society, women are not only contributing to the family, but in many cases are the breadwinners, which doesn't sit well with all men. Quote, if a man isn't completely comfortable with his wife being the breadwinner, that could cause him to feel less secure if he were the, if he were the breadwinner. It could have put a strain on both in the marriage, end quote, says Fitch. She continues, quote, this situation makes it difficult in terms of the man's self-esteem. It could affect him by making him less romantic or having problems on his job. He could go through a cadre of emotions. Attorney John W. Wiggins Sr., owner of a law firm in Houston, Texas, disagrees that marriages are headed towards disaster if the husband isn't the head of the household financially. Instead, Wiggins says, to the contrary, men want wives who can assist them. Males that are, are not taking their self-esteem being lowered so much to heart, they are looking for someone who can assist in the financial pursuit, observes Wiggins. I don't see so much of that just stay home and raise the kids situation, but I see have a job and raise the kids. Men are looking for someone who can assist them, end quote. Wiggins offers that the lack of money contributed to eat by either spouse within a marriage and selfishness could both contribute to the financial downfall of a marriage. The lack of money generated by one person in the eyes of others, uh, others can cause a problem because the expectations of the other person haven't been met, says Wiggins. You also have people who have married young or before they acquired stability, and they tend to get selfish. They will feel that they want to enjoy their funds alone because they are doing so well. Another reason money is the leading cause of divorce is because a spouse could use it as a symbol of power in the relationship, says Dr. Alan C. Carter, a clinical psychologist from Atlanta, Georgia. He believes power struggles may surface throughout marriage, and money is usually the root of the problem. Quote, money has power connected to it and it is a way to control, Dr. Carter tells Jet. It is one of the most powerful ways that we think we can control people. It is a symbol of the way to get something that you don't have, end quote. Also, an adjunct faculty member at his alma mater, Morehouse College, he notes that using money as a way to control one's spouse, quote, comes out of fear. Money is used to keep a person within a certain grasp or boundary in a way that makes the controller feel safe, end quote, Dr. Carter states. He also says that some partners define themselves in the relationship with money, which leads to conflicts. Quote, if a person is rigidly identified with the social role that the man is the breadwinner and the woman is the helper, 
It will produce great conflict for both, explains Dr. Carter. The man is usually the authority, and the money has control, and the authority connected to it. The man, he may feel he has to be the man by having control of the money. A woman will accept the role by allowing the man to have the authority, but she may feel conflicted and confused for a while because she feels it's unfair, Dr. Carter adds. Shelvin Louise Marie Hall, a judge of the Circuit Court of Cook County in Chicago, Illinois, agrees that money is symbolic. She believes that money doesn't cause problems in a marriage, however. What it represents to people does. Quote, money is a symbol of what the real problem is. The fight really isn't about money. It's about love and the lack of expression of it, concludes Judge Hall. She adds, when the wife tells her husband that he doesn't spend money on her, she's really saying he doesn't care about her, because if he did, he would spend money on her. She wants more attention. When the wife shops all the time, the husband will feel that she's wasting money. He's saying that she doesn't care about the resources. He really means that she should spend more time at home focusing on the relationship instead of being at the mall. Now, that's the end of the first article. We'll get into the second one later. I generally kind of do one hour at a time of reading. Um, so we're going to call on our panelists. Um, first, I'm going to suggest uh, we're going to go with um, Chibi. Do you have anything to say so far in regards to this? Um, well, on the last part that you read, I have to sort of disagree with that. I, I mean, obviously, every situation is a little different, but... To say that, you know, if the husband is upset that she's spending money at the mall, I mean, it could very well be that he's upset she's spending resources. I mean, I know I've been in that situation because it does make your life more stressful when you have to pay the bills and you're barely getting by and you can't afford to, you know. Right. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me. It's not so much about the spending more time at home. Well, right, and I would also say I don't necessarily agree with everything in these articles. We're just kind of using them as sounding points to get the conversation started. Right. Um, now, um, James, let's move on to you. What do you have? What do you think so far about this article? I think it's interesting. Um, I think, for the most part, the one thing that surprises me is how little it surprises me, given the circumstances. When you look at a uh, I think the the differential advantage thing was something I didn't really think about because when you think about a relationship, um, you typically hear like, you know, what's mine is yours sorts of situations, but, but never having been married myself, I never really thought about it on a level of actual income. Um, and it seems as though if somebody is the, the sole breadwinner or whatever, they do have this kind of uh, differential advantage or or, or means of lording something over someone else it's kind of uh microcosmic if that's a word of um the the broader economic idea so it, it, it kind of stands to reason uh just thinking about it at the moment but it's it's more of a thought than a contention now do you think that this situation might be any different in um in Ireland itself or in Europe, or is it pretty much basically this is a situation that exists in Ireland as well, the notion that, you know, women are out in the workplace. I mean, I, I, I spent some time there, but I was only there for like 10 days, and I didn't exactly get into people's personal lives. Let me pull you something up. Um, I think you're, you're really right um, on that note. I, I think it matters where it is full stop. Um, a lot of the you know, cultural values or, or marital values of certain people will change it to a huge degree, as will like the, the social or uh, economic 
capabilities in a certain area. Like if two people can work, then it's typically not going to be a problem. Um, in Ireland, I think it would have done a lot more in the earlier years. Um, I, I suppose we're probably a few years behind you guys in terms of economics in many regards. Um, it does seem as though there, there was, even in the 90s, a huge emphasis on the idea of a woman staying at home or whatever, or even a relatively huge emphasis on that that doesn't really exist today. So I think we are, in many regards, going in a different direction. There isn't necessarily that sexism attached. So it's not necessarily that the male is always the one who has differential advantage. Um, but it does seem to stand to reason that if people have kids, it's always going to be the case that either the man stays at home or the woman stays at home. And therefore, money being valued as the, the kind of the the universal resource that we all value above actual tending to our children or whatever, the man's place will seem more relevant or valuable than the woman's, if you know what I mean. So it does seem, it does even, even seem still kind of, or the, the money, the, the money bringer, as it were, will be more valuable than the, the other person, if you know what I mean, not to mention men or women again. But um, it's, I, I don't really know if it's the case in Ireland at the moment, but I do I do see it in the old days, and I suppose this is a lot to do with the kind of the breadwinner mentality of men. A lot of them are very indignant if they can't, you know, do that kind of thing. Yeah, to, co- to comment on something that somebody said in chat, we, are, we aren't just talking about the legal institution of marriage. We're talking about the impact on relationships in general. And I'm going to, at some point, evaluate beyond that also into talking about the relationships in family but, yeah, um, I, one of the things that came into my head when you talked about the differences in Ireland was I remember one of the nice ladies who we stayed with at a bed and breakfast in Ireland during our trip um, said that, you know, it seems as though that the, the Irish government was not content to see the United States make all the same financial mistakes, that, that they had to make sure that they made them as well. <laughs> um, she was a history teacher, apparently. I, I don't know if you agree with that, but basically just she stated that she was watching as her government was, rather than learning from the things that were going on, you know, in the consumerist culture that is, you know, the United States, that it was just kind of repeating all of those um, mistakes. And she also talked about how the um, the students were just becoming saturated with the video games and stuff like that that's all very common over here. And I guess that was less of an issue in Ireland until recently. Um, do you have any commentary on either of those points before we continue? Yeah, I, I think just on what you were saying initially, I think, yeah, when we, Ireland being further behind and kind of seeing um, America in many circumstances as the economic kind of ideal uh, during even the 40s and 50s over here, you would basically see people saying, you know, you could watch the depression and the recovery from the depression and they'd go, oh, they did this wrong, we just needed this piece of regulation. So they didn't necessarily just say, oh, yeah, we'll just, we'll, we'll run blindly off the edge of this cliff. But um, they were essentially doing that because they didn't realize that the immutability of certain factors within economics go far beyond regulation in some circumstances. But um, there was one thing I was actually just going to mention to you because I've, I've dug it up here, which actually is very poignant to the, t- the subject of um, women versus men in the context of, of uh employment at the very least. This is actually in the Irish Constitution. In particular, the state recognises that by her life within the home, woman gives the state support without which the common good cannot be achieved. The state shall, therefore, endeavour to ensure that mothers not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in 
engage in labour to neglect the duties of their home. Article 41.2 of the Irish Constitution. So you do still see sexism within these contexts and these things have never been changed. So needless to say, it was a problem at some stage that there was kind of a, a divide in that regard. Do you think that that could have something to do with the strong influence of the Catholic religion in Ireland? I think not just Ireland. I think it's a, it's it's a baggage that it pretty much every kind of culture that sprang off England has to bear at the moment. So I, I think it's something that, that exists actually is beginning to exist more prominently in in America as well. So right. um, yeah, I think the constitutional inclusion of such a travesty is probably related to to Catholicism during the years that it was produced. But it's it's. It's something that I think we all have. It's fairly ubiquitous around the the the, the cultures that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Oh well, I wasn't saying that it was it was unique to Ireland. It just it's one of the things that popped into my head was you know perhaps Catholicism had something to do with it. But yeah. Um, all right. Well, um, that being said, I'm gonna pull up uh, Matt. Do you have any comments so far? Um. Yeah. Um. Basically, I think that. Um, I agree with everything you said so far, except I wonder about the percentage. I think you quoted as 57%. I wonder how many other relationships that are so-called for another reason actually are monetary-related, because I think most problems in society are monetary-related. So another instance you might think of is um, somebody leaves somebody for somebody else, but in that instance, how many times do they leave that person or their current partner for somebody who's making more money. So, I mean, how many other instances actually are further related to money that they may not have taken account for? Right. No, that's very true. That's very true. The, the people who marry for money are, are generally kind of looking for security, for um, pleasure in the form of, like, the materialism that they can get out of that money, you know. Um, and... And also just a matter of like, you know, we, we, went, we went over security. Uh, what was his name? His name was Robert Anton Wilson talked about money and he referred to it as bio-survival tickets and that it has a place in our psyche, our psychology, so to speak, because of the fact that it's essentially, it's survival on paper. You know, these, these pieces of paper are my survival. So that therefore, you know, affects us in other ways, you know, through whatever instinctual things that we still have with us. Um, in addition to the fact that there's also the the environment that comes out of that, which is basically that, you know, if you have a husband who has a lot of money, then therefore you have a certain social status um, that goes along with it. I mean, is that kind of what you're referring to? Um, Yeah, exactly. I mean, you might go for somebody who's, you know, your boss or something like that, but usually those kinds of statuses are tied to like a monetary type of thing there so people go for power power relates to money you know i was just thinking that how many other instances other things could you think of that are actually monetarily driven that weren't necessarily somebody when they under divorce say oh we're partying because we're monetarily incompatible right i don't think they think about it that way but it causes the you know the other problems and i think you know something about what you're talking about there also has to do with the impression of what people find attractive you know, uh, you said power, you know, power is attractive. The reason that girls find physically strong men attractive is because physically strong men at one time would have been better for, you know, better providers. But that's less of an issue now. A guy like Bill Gates, you know, could be attractive. A guy like Donald Trump could be attractive because of the, the essentially, if you compared his physical strength to his monetary strength, then you have certain, you know, uh, essentially compatibilities in what it is that we've been finding interesting at that point. I mean, it's, but, yeah, I, I see totally where you're coming from. Did you have anything further before we move on to Doug? 
No, I was just wanted to make that one point. Okay, no problem. All right, Doug, um, let's see what you can uh, weigh in on with this. I mean, I, I know it's not building doors for the space shuttle, but uh, I'd be interested to see what your opinion is. Right. Um, I'd have to say I really go back to the cultural emphasis, and one of the things that uh, that you mentioned I think is very valid is our country, specifically the United States, puts a significant emphasis on money and materialism way over what I consider to be most everywhere else on the planet. And so it's no shock to me that you would see money be an integral part of relationships and can be the catalyst for starting the relationship in the first place, which is what you were talking about just a moment ago, or the catalyst for dissolving the relationship as the power struggle starts to occur. Because, I mean, if you look at the, the women's lib movement and whatnot, it, it instilled, rightly so, I believe, that women are just as effective as men and should earn just as much and be treated as equals. Well, even now they still aren't, even though people, you know, try to stand up and say America's the best thing since sliced bread when it comes to equality, and we all know that's still a bunch of nonsense because there's still women are still paid less for doing the same amount of work overall. And so that that baggage, which I like, I think is what James had said, that baggage kind of still comes along uh, comes along with us. And so. Um, there's that inherent struggle of women still trying to prove themselves to, even though I don't think they have to, I think they can be in many cases just as strong as men on a variety of fronts. And that struggle can and does at any particular point uh, can cause a nuclear explosion in the relationship. Right. No, I totally agree. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting, actually, somebody was just pointing out in our, you know, in our, our host chat, you know, uh, if there are any women who want to weigh in on this, um, I hope that, you know, by all means, uh, please call in. I still have the uh, toll-free number available, and I can add you um, via Skype um, if you're interested. Uh, like if Sue, for example, Matt's wife, if you, I don't know if you have another computer there, if you want to call in, let us know. You know, I, of course, would love to hear from you on this show. Um, but uh, that being said, uh, I know something Chibi pointed out was that religion does weigh in on this a little bit because religion helps to define um, what it is that we think relationships are, you know, and it shouldn't be like that. And one of the things that you're noticing, and this actually comes into my point that I wanted to discuss, is the, is the subject um, that basically um, our society has a lot of ideals that were originally reinforced by religion. And as the power of religion becomes less and less, because reality-wise, it is. You know, regardless of any arguments we have about them, nobody can argue about the fact that superstition is killed by science. Science is becoming more prevalent. And with it, the roles are changing. Um, you know, one of the things that I noticed, you know, in my own relationship, although I have to say that my, my relationship problems really had very little to do with money myself, as far as my reasonings for getting a divorce, but... Um, there were stresses that were caused by it, but another thing is, is that the, 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 at, at the center of relationships in general, the roles that we had provided for ourselves within our, within our structure, the idea that you know, the man is physically stronger, so therefore he will be the worker and therefore the provider. Um, the woman is a little bit less strong, so she's going to be the hunter, or she's going to be the gatherer, and she's going to rear the children and keep the house clean. These kinds of roles don't really, they're not even really relevant because, you know, somebody being strong anymore really doesn't matter a lot in the workforce of today. Um, 
And um, there were a lot of other little uh, social nuances that enforced the system that just don't exist. Um, a woman getting divorced now is no big deal. Uh, a woman working in the workplace is no big deal. And, and I don't want to change that. Don't get me wrong. These are, but the, however, the, these are examples of things that are slowly eroding away what the traditions of marriage used to be, there, there, as in what the purpose of marriage even was. And I think that this next article we're going to read in the second hour talks about some of that. But the, the, the very nature of why people got married, why people had families, is totally changed. Um, you, you used to have a big family, like the clan system that they had in Ireland and Scotland, as an example, the Celts had giant families, you know, where everybody would work together and take care of one another. That notion really has kind of died away. Uh, a lot of families are just, you know, they, uh, with an exception of the few farming families that I've seen that have a lot of members, you, you likely don't even run into any situation where you're even going to basically need anybody else. And at first, at least that's the way it looks to you. And then it occurred to me later, you know, the system would really like us to be more dependent on it. That's, that's what I think all this, that's the danger here, is that people are, are basically distancing themselves from their families, distancing themselves from, uh, you know, their, their overall role as, as working together community-wise within their family. You know, uh, nowadays, you know, like there was a time when, you know, if something went uh, bad, um, you know, uh, you could depend on your family. You know, it wouldn't even really be a question if you had to call them. They probably lived near you. And in addition to that, they were already thinking about how they could help you. Nowadays, it's kind of a question of, you know, do I call my brother and ask to borrow money? You know, yeah, it, wow, I mean, or do I call my parents? Do I ask them to borrow money? You know, it, that whole thing has changed now, you know. So um, I'm going to go ahead and bring Douglas back on. He said he had another thing to say. Go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, well, now two points, kind of you ended up leading into another one that just hit me like a brick. And the first one I want to talk about is, uh, and somebody mentioned that money is also a way to look at it as uh, not money breaking up the relationship, but the pursuit of somebody with more money being a way to break up a relationship, kind of an indirect. Another indirect would be, in my particular scenario, I'm on my second marriage now, on my first marriage, it fell apart for other reasons, but because they had money and I didn't, the legal battle was just – it just blew me away. I had no shot. I had no chance to keep my son, and right. I ended up losing him in the custody battle because I had a $50 cheap you know, lawyer who really didn't honestly give a crap about me, and they – making well over about $150,000 a year is, is basically dwarfed my income or made my income, you know, nothing. Were able to have a, they have a personal family lawyer that they were able to just destroy me in the courtroom. And uh, the scenario was even more distorted because of the medical circumstances that were involved that she was broken and I, I wasn't because of extenuating circumstances, mm-hmm. but they still won. And that, basically came down to money. They could put up the fight, and I couldn't. And so there's another way money can hose you. But I want to go to, to kind of shift off of that now and talk about how technology, and you kind of started bringing this up, you don't have to be super strong anymore for us to accomplish things. 
Well, one of the things we always talk about in, in the Venus Project is how technology has basically changed the social paradigm, how it's changed everything in a way. Basically, since 1980, with the advanced computing and robotics, has given us the capabilities to produce abundance without human labor. That whole without human labor thing, which is something I touch on a lot in Awakening, obviously, matters a lot because that also means without the need for physical girth and strength, and that changes the family dynamic or the sexual dynamic of what men need to be doing and what women need to be doing and all that. Technology screws all that up because now it doesn't matter. The machine is doing the work, not the human. So it doesn't matter if the guy is Poindexter or if the guy is Schwarzenegger. It doesn't right. matter, or it doesn't matter about the, the woman either. Her status is irrelevant when the technology is able to do for us. And so when it comes to that, that puts everybody on the same level, and, and I think that's where... That's where a lot of the, the tensions come from, and, and that's, of course, another bonus for why it's a good idea to get rid of the monetary system and go to the RBE. Right. I agree. Um, well, um, you know, basically to, to comment a little bit on the first thing you put up is, yeah, the, the, the divorce industry is a freaking huge industry, um, and it's, it's becoming more and more a facilitator of lawyers. I mean, it's like when I wanted to file for a divorce, I live in a, I live in a right to divorce state. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just go get these papers. They're not that hard to understand. You know, I'll go over there and, you know, I'll get them and fill them out. And, you know, it's, it's not like it'll be hard. And, and basically, they don't help you at all. You, you go up there and you're basically expected to have a lawyer. It's as if the lawyer is like, you have to go get a lawyer is like going and getting a license to do these things. And the... Because, of course, the, once again, monetary system, the, the people who, you know, the clerks and all that are terrified of being sued, they don't want to give you any advice, you know, because they're worried that they're going to get sued. So if you, you know, it's like I asked for the papers to fill out, and they said, well, we don't provide those. Um, you'll have to, here's, here's an 800 number for a service that provides these papers for a price. I just kind of sat there with my mouth open going, you're, you're kidding me, right? You're telling me that I can't just get papers to get divorced if I want to be divorced? I've got to pay somebody, you know, just to get the papers and fill them out myself? I mean, I understand things like filing fees and all that other jazz, but, you know, it, fortunately enough for me, I had already had that covered from, you know, from uh, something I had done in the past, and I was able to get the assistance of a pro bono lawyer just to assist me in getting the paperwork that I needed. Um, but it is a serious industry. These people make a lot of money on this stuff, and you know, when you're looking at the, what motivates a lawyer, a lawyer is paid by the hour or by the amount of trials or whatever. So they're kind of in, they're basically interested in drawing things out as much as possible because the more items that they can make you argue about, the more money they make, you know. And so therefore it's another example of a profit motive doesn't even make the lawyers good. You know, it, it doesn't encourage them to be as, you know, as efficient for you as possible. Um, it's just so therefore you got to take that into consideration that these are also matters that in a moneyless society we wouldn't even have to deal with you know we wouldn't have situations like yours Doug where you know money decided who got to have rights and who didn't you know that's and that's basically the way that this structure is set up and as long as we have a profit motive justice in these sorts of domestic issues is never really going to be easy to have I mean I understand why the the marriage contract exists you know, but I mean, like, and it has protected me more than once already over the course of my own divorce. Um, but 
but without it, though, I mean, if we lived in a society where the, the, the attitudes were different, like if you've ever heard Jock and Roxanne talk about their own relationship and why they never got married and what motivates them to stay together and how they feel about one another, they don't own each other. Um, and that, that's never entered their mind. And they see in the future that our relationships will be like that, where we don't own each other, you know, where we coexist, we share each other's values, we enjoy each other's company. That's what keeps us together. Not any notion that you're my this or my that. So um, that being said, um, Chibi, you, there was something you wanted to elaborate on? Uh, it would be a bit of a rant, if you don't mind. Hey, we got two hours. Go at it. Uh, well, yeah, okay. I feel like we've passed the topic a little bit, but uh, I know you mentioned uh, the science versus religion aspect of marriage, and I mean marriage as an institution, not uh, well, even relationships in general. I think there's a really important aspect of this that not a lot of people are aware of, and um, you know they don't think about how our relationships evolved along with our culture and our legal institutions and our monetary systems and so on and so forth. Um, what, uh, like Sapolsky, what he calls us is a tragically confused species, which I think is a great way to put it. Uh, what we see is, you know, you have, what, like 5,000-ish mammal species out there, and of those, about five, uh, less than 5% of them are monogamous, and in these, you find some features. Uh, in monogamous species, you don't have imprinted genes, for one. Um, the male-female figures are pretty much identical, obviously, outside of the sexual organs and the, uh, the male, and, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily breast, but how you nurture your infants. But outside of that is pretty, you know, like a male-female penguin, same size, same everything. Um, and what we have in all species that are, are what they call tournament species, where you compete for a mate, <clears throat> and those are not monogamous because they have a different parent for each child generally, mm -hmm. is uh, larger canines, larger body size, things like this. And we actually see that in human beings. Now, it's, it's uh, the reasons behind all that, it might not all necessarily, you know, causation and uh, correlation aren't the same thing, but... Um, there's a lot of evidence to say that we're somewhere in between, as though at one point we were actually uh, a tournament species, and now we're sort of our culture um, is pushing us, or in our religions, pushing us in the direction of monogamy. But that's why he says we're we're just a confused species. I think that is important for people to look at <clears throat> and understand. The other thing, well. The reason religion, uh, I mean, it's such a complex issue, why we have the institution of marriage. Uh, you know, there's no one reason that you can point to of why we are where we are. And I wouldn't say it's just money, and I wouldn't say it's just religion. I wouldn't say, you know, it, it's just that cultural evolution that we've ended up here. But I obviously think that it's uh, wrong or it's not natural, and that's why it doesn't work very well. I guess I'll end it there. Okay. Well, I think I was also kind of referring to generically when you deal with the human species, there are certain things that there are basically just limitations to upper body strength and stuff like that. And don't get me wrong, I don't believe in any limitations for things like warriors and stuff like that. I think you just find other ways of handling it. I, 
when I teach martial arts to women, I just teach them different techniques that work better for somebody, you know, with their body type. I don't get into any kind of equality issues. It's, it's just if you want to be able to do this, this is how you would do it. This is how this person would do it. It's not because you're inferior. It's because you work with what you have. Generically, you know, men are capable of some upper body strength feats that women are just not built for. Now, there are exceptions, of course, but the things that a woman has to go through in order to be able to achieve that physically are really tough. And that's why you end up with situations like, for example, I, I totally support the idea that women could serve in the special forces, you know, so to speak, you know, if, if we, you know, if militaries were used for what they're, you know, for protecting people and all that, obviously not pro-military, but, but they still have to be able to do the same things that would be required of them physically, including being able to carry the, you know, the other soldiers off the battlefield, things like that. You know, we could go further than that. You know, there are female firefighters, female paramedics things like that, and they find other ways of dealing with it. But once again, these are not limitations that I feel. We're just talking about society in general. And in society in general, the roles as far as, like, the, the physical sizes, you know, were an issue. You know, um, and I think that that was also more enforced. There's the issue. It was enforced by the society even. You know, a woman wanting to do manual labor, well, there was something wrong with that. You know, that's what they made it look like. You know, there was something wrong with you. You were girly. You know, or I'm sorry, you were too manly if you did that, you know, and, and the same thing is true, you know, like of men, you know, like my stepfather, for example, you know, was kind of the stay-at-home dad for a long time. He kept the house very clean, cooked dinner, got us up for school. I had no problem with that, and I do the same thing, you know, at home in my, in my life, and it's, it's not emasculating to me, but a lot of, I still deal with, like, you know, one of my ex-girlfriends, you know, his fa her father just couldn't stand that, you know, the notion that I wasn't some blue-collar you know, worker like him, the, you know, that I stayed home and took care of things while she went to work, really bothered him. He couldn't handle it, you know. Um, and uh, so that, that's basically just a couple of angles to think about when it comes to this, you know, is that those are just the roles that have been defined. We don't need to hold ourselves to them. But, um, James, you had a question? Yeah. And from what Chibi was saying um, and a lot of what you were saying at the end there, V, um, Basically, my question uh, primarily would be, is there any like intellectual or intelligence um, correlation between monogamy and mammals and intelligence, basically, Chibi, or are you, are you aware? As far as I'm, no, not as far as I know. I mean, primates uh, are not necessarily monogamous in the way that we see monogamy, so... And, and those are really intelligent mammals. Then again, you either have, um, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but what, something like, uh, there's some bats, there's uh, jackals. Well, yeah, there are monogamous species out there, and I wouldn't, if I were to try and compare intelligence, I would say they're a little lower on the ladder than, say, gorillas. So, no, I, yeah. I don't think there's a correlation. So the only point that I kind of uh, I was toying with the concept of making it is basically you just have a periphery without an actual understanding of intellect or, or um, even environmental suitability regarding monogamy. Like if you're in a certain situation, it does seem to stand to reason that there is strength in numbers. If you're if you're if the name of the game is hoarding of resources or accumulation of resources to a point that you can survive or uh, propagate um, more efficiently or make a bigger family as a result of having 
more stuff and, and more protection, it does stand to reason. Um, to say that even within the context we're in now, which is a world where women are, for the most part, capable of doing anything a man could do, um, there is still an inherent benefit to monogamy in many circumstances because what you get with that is a... Uh, if you want to look at it as the merging of two financial bodies, you can. And ultimately what you're getting from those things are numbers, number, things like tax relief and all these things, and all these things that are directly contributory to how many kids you have, for the most part. Although you could very easily question that statement and ask the question, all right, well, are richer people having more kids than poor people? And the answer is axiomatically no, but the ones who are born into those families are typically more powerful and subsequently go on to control more things and on goes the process to a point that we almost have a sh like a, a social stratification process included into evolution now rather than just having more people the people who are around seem to evolve towards being you know more whatever perpendicular tangent I sincerely apologize for that one but basically what I'm saying is there's still a benefit even within the context of an economy that we have today to monogamy right you know what I mean? a huge benefit yeah well the, it reinforces it it really pays to be monogamous in this society i mean and especially you know uh 500 years ago if you weren't monogamous uh, you'd be in some big trouble depending on where you live so yeah it, it definitely pays yeah it's well, you know to comment but on that oh, go ahead james now I think the only the only thing that I'm 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 wondering kind of as an afterthought as to what I just said is the question of okay well if you were just uh, trying to think of the, the the highbrow way of putting it somebody who is basically promiscuous and and eventually just led to having numbers of children with various people those kids would typically let, end up I'm 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 working in this dimension of like affluence a bit too much but what I'm trying to say is the families that uh, stay together that is to say the parents who are together and whatever are typically wealthier and subsequent to their wealth they have a means of educating a child that will eventually lead to you know these sorts of things so it seems as though things are moving in the direction that the monogamous people are becoming more powerful if you see this weird argument I'm trying to make here. Mm -hmm. No, I actually, I understand what you mean. Um, in addition to that comment, I, I would also point out that, um, like, for example, I talked to a friend of mine who, who is a Jewish, and he discussed that a lot of the, the rules, you know, in Judaism, when you think about it, had very scientific basis. You didn't eat pork because at the time in question, um, you know, it would be dangerous if you don't cook pork correctly trying to explain to somebody that there are germs in something before they can have a microscope and really understand that there are germs in pork is too complicated, so you just simply don't mix the pork, you know, uh, you don't eat the pork, and you certainly don't eat meat with milk, and there are scientific reasons for that. There well, are also... been scientific in that in, in such a blatant regard. It may well have just been that they saw many people who had pork died and thought it was a some sort of act of God. Right. Well, that's what I'm trying to get at is that there were scientific explanations for all of this stuff, and they followed these rules. Now, another one of those rules, though, is one of the benefits of monogamy is the, the lack of spreading of venereal diseases. When you think about, you know, some of the, especially even things like syphilis were, were deadly, you know, back then. And, you know, like uh, the reason that, uh, oh, what was his name? One of the emperors was totally 
fruitcake. I'm trying to remember what his name was, but he had syphilis, you know. And the eighth? Well, Henry the eighth would be another example. I was thinking of a Roman emperor, uh, Caligula, you know, total nutcase. And it was because he had syphilis. Um, and it just it made him insane. You know, these could be other explanations for things like monogamy. Um, you know, but it, we're also talking about scientific, you know, examples of different kinds of relationships. Uh, gorillas are um, po- like basically polygamous by nature. The male gorilla has, you know, many mates. The, the male deer has many mates. Um, the male lion has many mates. Um, and it's generally a pairing that works like that. And then they fight over the mates. And that kind of generally comes back to the notion that, well, if, you know, if they're the stronger male, then they're technically going to be the stronger provider, you know. And the reason that all these ancient examples are important is because of the fact that they don't really exist anymore, and that's one of the reasons why things are breaking down. It's not just in the uh, in the relationship system; it's also in the monetary system. You know, like I I noticed, like for example, a lot of the people in the heavy Christian right, um, uh, the Constitution Party in particular, always say we need to return to good Christian values. That's why we have all these problems. And, and, you know, in one way, they're right, you know, because we're not brainwashed anymore to believe that if we don't, you know, if we don't stay with our husbands or wives and our unfulfilling relationships, we'll go to hell, you know, well, then, yeah, our relationships are less successful because we don't think that there's some higher power that's going to punish us that way. And this moves into the same thing with, you know, the morality of things like technological unemployment. There used to be a time that, you know, outsourcing would be thought of as unchristian to go and expose those people in those third world countries and exploit them to, you know, slave-like labor conditions would be something you wouldn't think about doing because it would be against your religion. And without these kinds of essentially, you know, false excuses to be good to one another, the system starts to break down. Um, so it's not to say that, um, you know, that we should go back to religion. It's, it's probably better that we, you know, look at it from a perspective that the, the superstitious things that were keeping us in line are, are just that, they're BS. Bad science and bullshit. <laughs> right. There, there are other ways to justify monogamy than just based on our monetary system or our religion. Go ahead, Doug. Go ahead, Doug. Well, I'd say uh, we, what we've done is through innovation and technology and whatnot over the course of you know, a couple of thousand years of really trying to better ourselves, we have replaced our natural call of the wild biological survival instincts with money all we've done is shift it from you know the hunter-gatherer protecting king of the jungle kind of you know biological need to survive and shifted that over to basically a proxy we've moved it over to money so now who has the most money does that you know is the greater provider or what whatever the case may be and so that's really if you look at it on a, on a very basic level that's all we've done is we've shifted the science has gone from one end to the other we've got a proxy now to stand in place of going to kill the lion or going to hunt or gathering or building the shelters or whatever the case may be you know there's another aspect of technology that occurred to me that changed the relationship model is that now we have birth control um, there was a time when, you know, a woman had to be very careful about being pregnant outside of wedlock because to try to care for a baby by yourself, particularly in a society that wouldn't let women become independent, you know, financially, was really, it was a really bad situation to be in. Um, and now we have birth control, so that also kind of levels the playing field. Um, we have things now like, you know, it, back in the day, you know, it's not to say that, that you know, it's, it's, it's now a problem that you see more from women in that, you know, you get the, the attitude that, 
you know, now we can play the field and now both sexes are just doing it instead of only one. It isn't to say that the men were doing it any better, but relationships have become much more complicated, particularly in the United States, because both genders are just playing around and, you know, trying to discover their sexual adventures rather than just one. And it makes it, you know, it makes it really tough, you know, to find a, a, a mate that you feel secure with and compatible with. You know, but, but that's some of the problem also is that you think that if your mate cheats on you, that it's some kind of problem for you, that that means there's something wrong with you. You know, that's uh, one of the things that made me think about being a sex therapist at one point is the more stuff that you study about this, the more you find out that so many issues of particularly bedroom compatibility are just, they're just that, they're, they're BS. It's, you know, the size of your, you know, member, for example, is not a guarantee that you're going to be a good lover for somebody because all women are different. You know, all men are different. You know, some women don't like that. Some women don't or do. You know, it's it's so random who you're going to be compatible with. So to associate that with your ego is silly. You know, I, I've known girls, for example, if a guy's too big, which is generically assumed to mean that you're a good lover, you know, if, if you're too big, that they, they don't enjoy it. They're not interested in you, and vice versa. You know, size does matter, but it could you could be just as bad off or good or well off, depending. These are examples of the kinds of uh, stupid things that we've kind of brainwashed ourselves with that make relationships like a minefield. Trying to get you know get out of a relationship, you know, feeling secure and all that, rather than just thinking about things scientifically, which would be. You know, if this person wants this in bed, then obviously I should not try to have a relationship with them. Rather than getting into a relationship and then trying to force yourselves on each other in that way and then just being upset with one another when it doesn't work out or feeling inadequate. You know, I learned all about that over the course of my, you know, my bachelor years was just that every woman was different, every man was different. You know, but we have so many hang-ups created by our society that if you can't please somebody, then you're somehow failing and in some cases, people are failures because they just don't put in any, any effort. But in a lot of cases, there's really nothing you can do about it. You've got to go find somebody who you are compatible with in that way. And there shouldn't be some – society shouldn't be looking down on you if for some reason you, you know, you're not compatible with a person. Think about it more as a um, – it's not that you and I you – know, that I'm bad or that you're bad. It means that you and I don't work well together. We're not the correct combination. You know, you don't get upset because – your three-eighths bolt doesn't fit on the three-fourths, you know, washer or whatever. You don't, you know, that's, that's just the way it is. So, you know, in any case, um, when, it, when it comes back to, to, the, to the money issue and how this impacts things, we're going to get into the next article here in a couple minutes. So go ahead, Matt, if you had something. Well, I was just thinking um, while we're talking about relationships and why people have monogamous relationships, I was just feeling that um, I, I think that child rearing probably has something to do with it, especially from long ago in the past where a woman who's pregnant isn't nearly as nimble or able to protect herself, uh, or a woman who's just uh, delivered a child is going to be in a pretty vulnerable position and... Um, only a woman can really feed a, a child. You know, back then they didn't have formula, so it's like a guy can just, uh, you know, feed the child by himself. So the woman probably kept the man around because he was able to hunt, protect, defend. The guy kept the woman around. She's feed the child. I mean, 
it, it just seems like that would be something to rear the child they would want to stay together. So maybe there was something there. I don't know if it's purely religious. Like a lot of people say it's religious, but I'm like, there are probably other reasons for it because you can look at tribes in Africa and such where they don't have, you know, Christian-type religion background, but they still have um, marriages. And sometimes they have plural marriages where a man will marry seven women, but they still have that that concept there. So it may relate from something deeper. I'm not saying that I know. I just um, would think that maybe that might have something to do with it. Well, I think, you know, the chicken or the egg argument comes out of that because a lot of religious beliefs develop because of, like, rational reasoning. That's that's what my my Jewish friend was talking about, about, you know, the, the kosher laws probably helped them survive if they hadn't, you know, if they had been eating pork in the situations that they were in when kosher law was written, they would have died. If they had been, you know, you know, just sleeping around with whomever, you know, there were a lot of, you know, venereal diseases going around, they would have died. They have a religious excuse for it, but that doesn't change the fact that they, you know, that the religious excuses were created generally to facilitate some form of practical purpose. This gets abused eventually when you end up in situations like, you know, that, that don't, you know, that don't work with that. But like, you know, just I think you understand where I'm going with this. It's more like it's it's not that. You know, that religion is the cause. Perhaps these are the causes of religion. Do you understand what I mean, Matt? I think we lost Matt. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I just pushed my mute button while I was talking. But, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Sure. Who did we lose? Um, I think everybody's still on, actually. Okay. My, I'm, I'm sorry. Now, I could have sworn somebody just left. Nope, you're still here. Um, in, in fact, James, you said you had something to add. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that. Um, yeah, I think just the, the the bullet point that I'm kind of taking away from it is the concept that, yeah, like the monetary factor within a marriage or whatever can end a good relationship. But the point that you guys made that was kind of, uh, you know, interesting earlier on was that they can also be a bad basis for the initiation of a bad relationship. So it's not necessarily... You know, you could have, let's say, two people who are perfectly matched towards one another via value system, uh, all these sorts of things, intellect, uh, interests, everything. But they can break up on the basis of, you know, not having enough money to actually make, you know, the relationship work or live together or whatever, or spend enough time together to make the relationship work. And that can be a bad thing. And it seems to stand to reason on a much more kind of ostensible level than, the, the second one, if you start a bad relationship on the basis of, like the, there are, for example, two attractions, two kinds of things that I would I would disagree with within the context of, you know, relationships are a basis for having a relationship. And number one would be, how much money does he have? Right. But I can see, but I can see a reasoning. I can see a reasoning and I can see a means by which that, uh, that inclination in women would survive because women who, who, uh, make who who are attracted to partners who have a lot of money are typically going to in this circumstance have a relationship that will last longer and relationships that last longer typically have more kids so it seems in that circumstance that it is we our our society is kind of evolving in one regard towards money but the other is strength and the two things like strength or whatever physical ability or whatever is the other problem that I have but that seems like it's the old one it seems like it's the one that we're getting. We're, 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 it's residual. So it's, as I was saying earlier on, the baggage. And you've got both of these things that are ultimately kind of 
you, I don't understand them. I don't really, I can't, I can't understand why you'd, you know, want to, want to, on first look, at first glance, do either of these things. But they ultimately do stand to reason if you look at them within the context of the place they evolve. You know what I mean? Actually, yes, I do. Um, and the, I, I've seen, you know, um, for example, relationships that could have that could have worked that should have worked that due to financial situations failed, you know, just because you can't, maybe you can't get to see the person, they live too far away. Um, another one was always like, well, I had to break up with my high school sweetheart, even though I've been going out with her since I was 12 years old, and it's an amazing relationship. Um, are you okay, Chibi? <laughs> oh, okay. Anyway, um, Sounded like Chibi was dying there for a second. I think Chibi was dying, or he forgot he to mute his microphone. <laughs> At least we know he's he's, he's on the call. Um, yes. But anyways, I was saying, you know, maybe you know your uh, your relationship didn't work because um, you know uh, you decided to go to a school somewhere, so therefore you had to break up with that high school sweetheart that you got a perfect relationship with. You know, or maybe, you know, you were younger and your relationship ended because your parents decided to move and you live with your parents. You know, these are examples of also how the financial situation could destroy a relationship just because of things like this. The practicality is that the relationship can't exist because you live too far away and therefore it just doesn't work out. Um, so uh, we're now into the, the second hour. Uh, if there's anybody, anything anybody else wants to say before I move on to the next blog part, um, go ahead and uh, say so now in the, in the, the host chat. Otherwise, I'm going to move on. All right. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Chidi. I I think that happens a lot, especially in the internet age, where people who meet and have similar values but are not in a financial position to have a relationship. I I know I've been through that. You said you've been through that, and we've talked about it. Actually, the person who I feel has had affected me to the point that, like, I wouldn't be in this movement. I would never have been exposed to the stuff I'm exposed to now. Uh, if it wasn't for this person, and yet that that was uh, monetary reasoning that you know we didn't ever take our relationship further. So yeah, I think that happens a lot uh, today in inter- in the internet age. Yeah, well, I wonder yeah, how sure. relationships around the world don't evolve because they can financially never come together, which is unfortunate. I think it's kind of it's it's interesting to think about that factor because it's. It's something you rarely think about, but as soon as you can identify the fact that these are factors uh, in people's beginning to develop relationships that could subsequently make their lives much better and their intellect and, and, and mental stability so much better, but they're being founded on this stupid idea of money, and that could change, which is really strange to think about because it's something you don't really calculate a lot of the time. You know, and that's, that's very true. I've, I've, I, in fact, I, I've thought of a couple of relationships. Like there was this girl I met in Japan online, you know, who was just really, I thought, you know, very compatible, but it was just never going to be practical. You know, it just, you know, that's an example of like when people talk about things, for example, there's a, there's a forum thread about this on the Zeitgeist Movement forums, and they talk about, you know, will sex be scarce? How do we handle that? You know, because there won't be any money, because there won't be any prostitutes. Or therefore, there won't be any prostitutes. I'm like, well, I don't really think that's going to be an issue because, you know, if you can get on a maglev train and go meet somebody you just met on the internet, you know, you're going to have so much more, so many more opportunities to meet people who are compatible with you. You know, the, the world basically becomes the pool from which you're pulling from. So, um, 
in any case, uh, I think, yeah, I guess we're ready to move on now and we'll move on to the next article on this subject. This has been a great discussion, by the way, for those of you. you know, um, please remember to visit vradio.org, v-radio.org, for archives of this show and other shows like it, uh, my must-see TV section for documentaries that are pertinent to the Zeitgeist movement, many of which had a great deal of effect on me. You can, you can watch them for free there. Um, and uh, in addition to that, uh, the donation widget for the month of June is up. The donation widget for upgrades is almost totally closed now. I think it's down to like 20 bucks. I want to thank everybody that supported us in that. I was able to upgrade my computer. The only problems that I have left with it now are just ironing out some issues in the BIOS and all that. Uh, my tech guy will be able to handle that later. Um, and uh, thank you, everybody, who's given us the support, particularly now that I'm moving into this divorce stage of my financial situation. Um, it is more difficult for me to keep the bills going, but I will be able to maintain if I continue to do what I've been doing. So um, that, be, that being said, now we're going to go ahead and move on. Um, now, this article is entitled The Most Frequent Cause of Divorce by Luis Sison. Um, the link is given in the blog post. Um, statistics state that one of the most frequent causes of divorce are financial constraints, not having enough money to do the things you want, not having enough money to take that well-deserved vacation, spending more than we have, making purchases that are irrational, decisions made over what amount goes where and to whom, decisions about how to manage the money, who will manage the money, and when to manage the money, how much money will and should be spent on items that are needed, how much money should be invested. Stress related to finances when an unexpected situation occurs, death in the family, broken down stove, children's dental work, problems deciding what amount of money is, is whose and whether or not it should be jointly or separate from one another. Each spouse may have a different view and or perception of how money should be spent, etc., and sometimes do not find out how different their views really are until a money situation arises. It is true that communication is the root of all healthy relationships, but I believe that the financial part of marriage only makes communication worse sometimes. Money is the number one cause of divorce in this nation, and with that, there is no debate. Go ahead, think about your own relationship. Are you really fighting about the dirty dishes, or are you using the dirty dishes as an excuse for your anger because the real problem is about money? You just may not know how to say it. You may just be too frustrated to bring it up. You may be embarrassed. Trust me, you do not need to be. A little more than 90% of people in our country has experienced or is experiencing one form of financial problem or another. As long as there are money problems, there will continue to be an uprise in divorce statistics. Of course, there are several other things that should not be excluded when it comes to speaking about reasons for divorce. We cannot ignore the fact that we seem to have lost our ability to communicate. We have seemed to have lost our confidence in ourselves and being able to communicate. Marriage is no longer seen as a sacred union between two people that will remain that way forever. Marriage is no longer regarded or is regarding much in the same manner as 50 years ago. So much has changed since then. Our priorities are seemingly confused and do not seem to be focused on maintaining positive relationships. Instead, we seem to focus more and more of our attention on external objects to make us feel better. Which brings me back to the main reason divorce is skyrocketing. Maybe the husband is dying to buy the newest 42-inch television for the basement, and you do not agree that, 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 um, that this is a logical purchase. An argument will probably break out. If there is no argument and the couple does not sit and talk calmly about the situation, then there is no guarantee they will ever agree or find a middle ground for the situation. 
Communication is vital to marriage, never mind to relationships in general. What communication will not do, though, is make you feel different about your views all the time. It will not always end up a desire in a, end in a end up in a desirable manner. It will not always end up that you were able to change someone's mind. It is not a guarantee that if you know how to communicate that your problems will go away. All communication can do is allow you to speak about how you feel and to learn to listen to the other person. It allows you the time and space to sit down and discuss things. It will not change a person's thoughts, actions, perceptions, or wants and needs. It will not change a person into what you want them to be. Communication is vital, as I have already mentioned, but it is not the only thing that keeps marriages together or forces them apart. There are many reasons the divorce happens, and communication, though very important, is not the only thing that needs to be addressed. It seems that these, that these days society has lost the true meaning of marriage. We have lost the reason for marriage in the first place and are adapting to the core of marriage to suit our own personal thoughts and desires, as well as personal views and perceptions on what marriage is. So many different things affect the reason that divorce happens much more these days. I think we have lost long ago, or lost something long ago. Just makes me wonder. If divorce is high and views about marriage are changing and being altered, why then is the reason for marriage written exactly as it was in the Bible hundreds of years ago? Marriage has not changed. People have. I think maybe that in itself is the frequent cause of divorce in general. Our thoughts, views, beliefs, experiences, etc. have changed so much that we do not know how to embrace the union of marriage anymore and do not seem to take it as seriously anymore. It seems the same amount of time put into a marriage is similar to that of ordering a chocolate ice cream and then eating your half of it, realizing you wish you got the other flavor. You throw the other half in the trash and order another one. Why do we do this? It is simple to understand. We do it because we can. That's the end of that particular part of the blog, and um, that's the end of the reading portion of our show today. We're going to go on and uh, re go ahead and restudy this. Um, now, um, we're going to go ahead and start with you, Doug, since you went last last time. Um, go ahead and comment on what you think about this. Some of it is reiterating, I guess, what I already said. But Yeah, we've covered a, a lot of – it's kind of funny how we've blended the topic to a whole bunch of uh, <clears throat> areas. And uh, I really don't know how to address it. I mean, it's, it's true that – for example, all right, today I'm an idiot, and I decided to – drive my car out the garage and forgot to shut the driver door. Um, needless to say, that is not a good thing for a door to meet a garage in that kind of way. So that's going to cost like 200 bucks to fix, to get a new door. Now, fortunately, it didn't ruin the front end and stress it all the way through, but it wasn't good. Uh, bad day for me. And that's our primary car. Now, we had another car that was kind of messed up, but the beauty of the relationship that I have with my wife is her first thought is, are you okay? Yes, I'm fine. Okay. Can we fix this door? Uh, my, my intent was, can we fix the door by beating the crap out of it and getting it back into shape? That didn't exactly work very well. Plus I was mad, but I figured I'd give it a shot anyway. But the question of money or God, we got to fix this. How are we going to afford to do that? Never really came up we started discussing the options. Do we fix the other car? What would be cheaper? What would be less expensive, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it was a, a civil discussion. And we actually, she had a great idea to call some friends over. So communication, that, which is what this article uh, basically illustrates, matters a lot when it comes to any situation up to and including finances. So when something like what happened today happens, you don't turn it into a 
kind of figured out. I basically pulled a NASCAR and took all the tires off the Honda, put them on the other car, took all the ones off the other car, put them on the Honda, and took the battery out of the Honda and put it in the dead battery car. So now we have the backup car running, kind of robbing from the Honda, right. which made everything free. And so now, because <laughs> all we did was rob from Peter to pay Paul. And so now we can budget, and we're going to save up, and we're going to get the replacement door and, and get the better car fixed. Fortunately, lucky for us, we had a backup car to do that with. But still, the money scenario, like, oh, my God, how are we going to pay for this? We're, you know, and getting into a stressful situation never happened. And so communication matters when it comes to that. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you're saying, but I can also see where a couple that perhaps had less good, you know, less good communication you know, would come out of that being, you know, really rough. I mean, like, I can think, for example, of times just within my family, whenever my kids get near crayons now, the first thing that goes into my head was the cost that it costed me to repair the walls <laughs> when they just totally destroyed them. You know, every time my son goes near the door, and I remember that he busted a hole in the wall once by opening the door really hard because he thought it was funny, you know, and then the money issue pops into my head, you know, um, there are a lot of money issues, for example, from my own relationship with my wife that, that come up, you know, that, you know, that, you know, just think, you know, basically things that she's done in the past that have put us in that situation. And you think to yourself, you, you get angry and it's only because of the fact that these things cost money, you know, and money represents hard work to you. That was the, the issue of money representing power we were talking about earlier. You know, um, basically you run into a situation where, um, it, these things have an effect on the relationship, and if you can't communicate about them, and more to the point, if you can't prevent yourself from resenting them because of the monetary attachments to the problems that may arise in a family, you're going to have a lot of problems. Um, I, I think that what they were trying to get at, that communication won't, won't solve everything, um, is because of the fact that you may communicate and find out that you're not compatible. It's actually an issue that I, I bring up a lot, and this just has to do with marriage in general, and then I'll shut up and get to another panelist, but... Um, was that I, it occurred to me that a lot of relationships are bad because of the fact that, and that's the other thing, people blame marriage as if the institution of marriage itself is the problem. And, and not to say that marriage doesn't come with its own problems, but in many cases, failed marriages or, or getting angry at the idea of marriage is kind of silly. For the most part, what you run into is that people don't really honestly communicate who they are in the beginning of a relationship. They don't really, you know, like because they don't want to be alone or maybe they're physically attracted to the person, they will overlook so many things, you know. And when you're in that, uh, that mode of the, you know, that the they call the honeymoon, you know, you don't, you don't care about those things. There were a lot of warning signs, for example, that I should not have become involved with my wife. I ignored them because I was physically attracted to her and because, you know, she also represented herself differently when I initially met her and spent time with her for even for the first few months. It took, you know, years really for me to fully grasp what kind of a person she was. And that's an example of the total failure of communication that comes out for, for different reasons because you're, you're insecure. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to be rejected. So, you know, I, I'm going to use a euphemism that always makes people chuckle. But there's the saying that the honeymoon is over the first time you fart in front of your girlfriend or wife. And that's, that is really silly. But when you think about it, that most relationships, you do go through that period where you don't do that. You know, you don't want to misrepresent yourself. You, know, you don't want that person to see that other side of you, even though it's totally normal for you to be flagellant. Um, so just things to consider, I guess, when you're, when you're thinking about relationships in general, don't blame, um, don't blame relationships. Don't blame the opposite gender. Don't blame marriage for your problems. 
you know, if, if you were not honest with your partner, and more importantly, if you were not honest with yourself about your partner, you really have nobody to blame at the end of the day but you. You know, and that's something you've got to be really careful about. And I'm, I'm looking into the resource-based economy situation when we don't have social stratification that is what basically motivates people to, to do this. You know, you don't want to be rejected. That's bad, you know, social stratification. There's anti-social stratification. You know, you don't want to be alone. There's social stratification about that. Oh, look at him. You know, he never gets a girlfriend. He never gets laid. He never gets this. He never gets that. You know, those are things also that, you know, people get pinned on. And it ends up forcing you into these situations. And there was another monetary aspect of that that came up that I wanted to get out before I forget is that in some cases when the economy gets bad, divorces actually go down. And it's not because the quality of relationships changes. It's because divorces cost money. So you end up forced into a situation where you don't get a divorce, even though you would like one. You know, and I can confess that I really did hesitate for a long time to go ahead and file divorce with my wife, not because of the fact that, you know, I was scared that we were, you know, that we could be more compatible because of the financial implications of what would happen. Neither of us really had any family. So, you know, watching the kids was always going to be an issue. That's why one of us always had to stay home, you know, because there was no reliable babysitters. These are the kinds of financial, you know, pigeonholes that you get locked into, basically. Um, if you're in a marriage and you're not doing well financially, you can't afford to get out of the relationship. You know, that's another thing that would just go away in a Venus Project society. You wouldn't even have to worry about that. So once again, shutting up, I'm going to bring on Chibi. Did you have anything to add? Uh, yeah, I would really uh, oversimplify this one a little bit. I, I think really people just want too damn much when it comes to relationships. They've been romanticized by culture to a degree that is just unreachable by, I mean, even starting with Disney films, just young children, you know, they see the, the prince and the princess and, you know, they, this perfect sort of thing that happens and love story. I mean, you know, I think you don't need to be some enlightened uh, higher consciousness sort of learner to figure this out. A lot of people are realizing this, that it's just the idea of how relationships are supposed to go based on what, you know, you are sort of given by your culture, what you're expecting, it doesn't exist. You're never going to find the perfect person. There's no such thing. And I think that's a, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons, but that, that's another one. You know, another really crucial thing is that people don't understand what identity even is for themselves or for the other person. And yeah, they don't communicate and they don't get to know one another and understand where they're coming from and their background. Like, just the whole thing. Uh, what they're expecting is something totally different from what they get, and then they either sit in the relationship bitter for a while or they split off, but either way, unfortunately, a lot of times they have children and then bring the children into this same sort of bitter atmosphere. And, uh, but, yeah. You know, that's actually, that, that plays into something I just said in the chat room, and that is that people need to also have realistic expectations you know, I think that uh, this is something else, a little piece of wisdom imparted on me by a friend of mine's grandmother, um, who's one of those people who's been married for 70 years and got married at 16 or whatever. And I asked her, I was like, you know, what's your secret? And she's like, well, I think that people mistake the, that initial honeymoon phase as love. Um, and that after that fades, then you think you're not in love anymore. So you'd rather than working on it, you just end up looking around for somebody else to have that that, you know, initial euphoric feeling. 
Because when you first get together, they're always the, the best person for you. That's how you always feel. And after you get to know them, you know, then, you, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, this person isn't incompatible with me as I thought, you know, so therefore I'm just going to move on to somebody else. They don't, they are always looking for that perfect person. And when they don't find it, they think that that means there's a flaw in the relationship when it really could just be that this person does have a lot of things in common with me. Maybe, you know, if we worked on these issues or I could accept these issues, we wouldn't have to deal with that anymore. What do you think about that, Chibi? No, I think that's a big part of it as well. And I think that can even be taken back to biology in the sense of how we deal with experiences. And it's like the roller coaster ride. And when you go on it and you get this, I mean, your brain releases drugs anytime you have an experience. And when something's new, yeah, you get this anxiety sort of, well, it's similar to anxiety, but, you know, you get this sort of nervous and the butterflies in the stomach and you get this and that, all these different feelings that just uh, make everything, you know, have more clarity and just be really intense. And then as time goes on, that diminishes. Uh, that happens with a lot of activities and it includes relationships most of the time. And, yeah, as that fades uh, and people relate those feelings, those emotions, and those, uh, you know, whatever, to just they think, oh, well, it was the person, and now that's gone, so I guess I don't love the person anymore. It's just a misconception of, of our own biology. I think people, if they were better educated, they would understand these things, and, and uh, that alone would go a long ways in how we deal with other people and how we handle relationships. Yeah, you know, Jacques talks about love. Uh, a lot actually and he talks about some of the some of the shams about it um you know just that you have so much expectation um but all right james go ahead sorry it's just a muting there um can you guys hear me yeah yeah we can you're good awesome um i just think that what you mentioned there a few minutes ago doesn't it doesn't take a, a genius to see argument from ignorance staring you right in your face if you have a have your a relationship based on what people call the honeymoon period what is it it's the things you don't know that you idealize like the same with everything the same with the man in the clouds the same with everything if you don't know it you begin to make something up to fill the space that makes it seem fantastic like my favorite quote my favorite latin quote thing is the omne ignotum pro magnifico all that is not known is taken for magnificent. If you don't know your girlfriend farts, actually, I don't. I've, I've many friends. I've never seen fart or girls. You're, you you presume that these things never happen. If you you know don't know somebody's views on a certain subject, if you're sweet on them to a good enough point, you almost make up a good answer for them, to a point that you just completely distort almost your own vision of someone to make it seem you know, better or whatever. It's idealization of people happens all the time. You see a pretty girl on the street, you go, I bet she would be perfect for me. You know, and what, what's it based on? One good point and then you just fill in the blanks, if you know what I mean. Right, actually, like when people talk about your clothing, they say it doesn't leave enough open to the imagination. Um, you know, then you think about certain cultures, like, you know, in the Arabic culture, you know, well, that, out, that outfit leaves everything to the imagination. You have no idea what that woman looks like, you know. Yeah. Um, Great point. Um, all right. Well, uh, Matt, you're still muted. Um, oh, I guess the uh, yeah, it just takes me a second. I don't have a mouse. I'm using a little laptop uh -huh. thing to click the button. So um, I guess the only thing I would 
want to touch on is what you were talking about before. I have to agree that um, people sometimes are really looking for perfection. And um, when you look for perfection, you're just looking for a letdown because you're never going to find somebody that's going to be perfect all the time. So uh, you're going to either bounce from person to person because they're not mean your needs or you'll be unsatisfied in the relationship that you're in. So you just have to... uh, look at reality and take things from there. For sure, for sure. All right. Um, Doug, did you have anything further? No, I don't think so. We've covered pretty much everything under the sun with this panel. I'm loving it. Yeah, it's, it, this has been a great panel and a great show. Um, well, I, I guess I'll launch on to some more of my own stuff about this that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I, I cannot emphasize enough the wisdom that I had imparted on everybody earlier because I really came to the terms with that you know, towards the end of this relationship that I just got out of is that, you know, when, when I met her, I thought she was an intelligent, independent person, um, that she was reliable and, you know, had her head screwed on straight. And initially that's what attracted me to her. I didn't even realize that I found her physically attractive until later. Um, and it, but, but basically as the relationship started, there were a lot of details I'm not really going to get into, but, you know, as I said earlier, there were warning signs and I just, I didn't look at them enough, and I and I'd behoove you know it would behoove you to think about this in every relationship that you're in, particularly in the beginning. There's a reason that you need to get to know people, um, and more to the point, you, you shouldn't be upset if you're not compatible with somebody. You know, if, if you're not, then you're not. You move on, find somebody else. You know, because I can tell you this. That's another thing you find out because you, you are way better off being alone than you are suffering through a terrible relationship. That's another thing I don't think people recognize. Because of the social stratification issue of having somebody, you know, you don't want to be the person who doesn't have a date to the prom or whatever. You know, you don't want to be the person who doesn't have a date to the, you know, to whatever your friend's wedding is. You know, because of that, you just end up basically pushing yourself into these situations that really are not good for you. Um, you, You believe they're good for you, but they're just not. And, you know, once again, I say, you know, you've got to be honest with, you know, with, with that person and they've got to be honest with you. And the things that you do initially, that's the other thing that a lot of people screw up in relationships. You do these things because you think you're keeping the peace. You, you don't, you're not honest about the things that bother you. You're not honest about the things that perhaps you're doing with them that you don't really enjoy, but you pretend to enjoy them because you want them to be happy. You know, this sort of stuff is a disaster waiting to happen. You think that you're keeping the peace. You're thinking that you're making things better in the short term. But when that finally goes, you know, just like anything else, you can't keep, you know, pouring toxic waste into something, you know, without any kind of problems down the road. It is a serious problem later on if, if you, you know, if, if when these things happen and you're just, they just explode and, you're, you know, your partner actually resents you more for lying to them than they ever would have for you saying, you know, I don't really enjoy that so much. All right, James, hand up. What's up? Yeah, I'm pretty much on what you're saying at the moment is the, the point of not only looking at a relationship in terms of like getting to know someone, but getting to know the dynamic between the two of you can be indispensable in terms of figuring out where you're going to go in the future because every relationship has a basis in whatever you want to call it, attraction or uh, impressing your spouse. And the means by which you do these things can be different. Like if somebody is attracted to you uh, on the basis of your intelligence, 
you always hear these these old couples arguing that you used to write me poetry or you used to do this or whatever and ultimately if you don't refresh these um these attractions or reinstill the attraction on whatever basis it goes away so when you look at a bit the beginning of a relationship and you found a relationship on certain things those things will need to be reinforced and in many circumstances they'll be subject to diminishing returns to a point that somebody won't see the impressive thing that you did when you were 17 as the impressive thing you did when you're both 35 with two kids so not only is that a, a good thing in some circumstances it's a very bad thing in others it could be a good thing if you're talking about you know um somebody who admires you or rewards you socially uh, and commends you for having done something academic or whatever uh it's also a terrible thing if you look at somebody who, who founds their relationship on financial um superiority for example if you if you you got a girlfriend on the, or you found it easier to resolve conflict with your girlfriend by giving her a bracelet eventually that's just going to consistently get you into a situation where that's the only means by which you can sustain the relationship so it's it's almost the jump off point is almost the point at which you decide which way you're going to go and how you're going to found not only the relationship between the two of you but the dynamic and the means of conflict resolution and all the other things in between if you know what i mean you know, and even worse than that, when you're talking about the bracelet thing, it occurred to me that that puts you in another situation because how are you going to top that? Now I've got to get something bigger and better and bigger and better and bigger and better. Yeah, diminishing returns is what I was talking right. about there. It's, you know, it's, it's, gone, it's going to turn into a freaking Mercedes at some stage, surely. Right. I mean, because otherwise it's just not exciting anymore. Oh, he got me another bracelet. You know, it, it, when you're in that, that sad materialistic way of thinking that somebody's showing affection for you, I mean, I'm one of those silly romantic types. For me, it's just something, it could be as simple as just a 99-cent package of Rocher chocolate candies that she likes. You know, it, it, it means something because of the thought, you know. you know. But with some people, when we think about it, you know, like that person in the article pointed out, you know, like, well, he's not spending money on me. It must mean he doesn't love me, you know. So, um, but basically... Um, Continuing with what we were saying, Chibi, you said you would respond to that. Were you talking about something else, or did you have something to add? Uh, yeah, I, I had something to say about what just James was saying, and it, it sort of reminded me that uh, that's a whole other issue, that a lot of people with relationships, they put their own self-worth into others. They reflect that on others. They basically uh, define their identity, and I know because I did this for many years, you know, I define my own identity based on what I was to somebody else. So um, everything I do is to try and please this person, and that's what makes me what I am. If I can't do this, then what am I, right? And then I'm, you know, and it's just this whole, like, it, it's it's uh, inevitable failure, basically, because it's impossible. You can't please somebody. You can't make somebody happy all the time. You can't be perfect. And every time you're not, it, you know, it's, that's a whole other problem, and from several different.
Okay. Um, sorry about that, folks. Uh, I'm going to have to just add everybody back to the call. Um, everyone hang up on that one. That was the dreaded blue screen of death that was warning you guys might happen, which is the reason I wasn't doing shows until now. Um, so that being said, I'm going to go ahead and re-add our panelists. I apologize, guys. This is the reason I wasn't doing these. Um, let me go ahead and get everybody re-added, and uh, we'll go from where we were. We're having a great conversation. We only have about 20 minutes left. We can go a little bit over if need be and get everybody back on here. Um, thanks again for tuning in to V-Radio. And uh, this problem with the blue screens of death should be solved uh, when my friend gets home from his convention at the end of the weekend. So in any case, let me get everybody back on here, and we will continue our conversation about divorce and relationships. It has been a great show so far. Uh, thank you, everybody, for your patience with this. Um, but it basically is, is exactly what I feared. I've only had one blue screen of death since this problem, uh, since I upgraded everything, and I was hoping that the problem would just not bother me again. But and here we go. Um, this is uh, basically your plan obsolescence at work. <laughs> Let me get uh, Matt on here, and then we will be ready to go. All right. Here we go. Yes. There we go. All right, she be still ringing. Everybody's on now. Did I miss anybody? Nope, looks like I got everybody. Did Matt get in here? I am in here. Excellent, excellent. All right, well, let's continue. All right, oh. well, go ahead and finish what you were saying if you can remember, Chibi. Oh, yeah, it's kind of being interrupted like that. I don't know. Uh, I was basically just saying that it, it's also a big issue that people put their um, their own identity and confidence and how they define themselves into external sources, especially when it's other people. Um, an example would be, you know, if you're a father and a husband and you say, well, and that's your identity, right? So you define everything you do, how you think of yourself as that. Um, and if you can't perform perfectly at that or if the other person, you know, that you're in a relationship with has a, you know, any kind of disagreement or whatever, then it's, it's and you start to feel like you're just a failure, you know, uh, that's a huge problem. Well, that example doesn't have to be there. The point is the, that I was making is simply that um, if you are putting all of your own identity and your um, how you define yourself into another person, as opposed to just entering into a relationship with them and saying, "I'm me. I'm fine the way I am." And I mean, you know, obviously you want to be emergent, but you can share time with another person because you enjoy sharing time with another person, as opposed to saying oh, I'm incomplete and I need this other person to complete me and make me who I am, at which point that'll never live up to reality because it's not reality. And uh, that's another big problem with relationships in all kinds of different angles. Yep, you know, that's actually something that popped into my head when uh, James was talking that I didn't share was like, it's not just about like, you know, uh, impressing your mate, it's who are you impressing with your mate the, the trophy wife effect, you know, I've, I've seen so many people, for example, they get, they get broken up with, they get dumped, you know, and then therefore their next girlfriend needs to be just as pretty or prettier than the last one was because they don't want to appear as though they're weak or 
you know, that there's something wrong with them as a person because, you know, because of that. And then you also have the effects of people who are scared to show off their girlfriend or boyfriend to their friends, you know, because they're concerned about the social implications of who they were. Regardless of how happy this person makes them in private, they're so worried about the, the social implications of their relationship with this person, whether or not their friends would approve, you know, and then, of course, the family is also another issue. I've never gotten along with any of my in-laws. You know, um, do you want to bring this? Is this the girl you bring home to mother? You know, that that term. There's so many things that get add, you know, added into this that just are not necessary. So did you have another comment, Chidi? Oh, yeah, I was just going to respond to what you're saying. I, I agree, and I think that's just the extremities of that expression that I was pointing out, that you are you know, people thinking that way are putting that everything into those people. You know, they're putting their identity and their own, the way they view themselves onto somebody else, which is really selfish in a sense. And even though it's people who do this are generally, you know, oh, low self-esteem or whatever, you're relying on other people, it's still based on ego in a sense. That's how you're building your ego is through other people, and I think that's a big problem as well. But that leaks into so many other issues. Yep. Okay, good. It looks like they could hear us. Excellent. Um, but yeah, you're right, Jeannie. And I, it, it, that's another thing that I think would go away, you know, because like, you know, when Roxanne and Jacques, you know, we keep coming back to that. And I, I wish I could bring them on to talk about this because I know that he talked a lot about relationships and, and love in particular, you know, all the things that we do in the name of love that for the most part, you know, it's like, you know, if love was really this, this uh, esoteric, you know, religious experience that people try to connect it to, then please explain to me what the hell unrequited love is all about. You know, you fall so desperately in love with this person whom will never love you back, who is not interested in you in any way. You know, what exactly would be the, the spiritual benefit of such a thing? I've seen so many people ruined by unrequited love. It causes suicides. It's, you know, it's just it's a terrible thing to happen to somebody, you know, because then they don't feel like they'll ever be fulfilled because this person that I've become infatuated with is, is not interested in me back. So therefore, it's this tragedy in my life, you know, uh, that happens to people. And if there's ever been proof that love is not this, this, you know, this sacred thing that's supposed to only be good to us, I, I would think that would be it. I heard somebody key up. Does somebody want to add in on this? Yeah. Well, it it seems like a kind of something of a kind of misrepresentation or overextended metaphor because like you can be in a relationship with somebody and I completely lost, lost my train of thought you can Go ahead. what were, what were you saying just there a second ago it was that love is love is always a good thing yeah well there's like a bad side to every emotion there's a bad side to every kind of gesture or idea of altruism like many people who've done very bad things have done them with good intentions the road to hell paved with good intentions all that malarkey if you begin to and Chibi touched on it earlier on if you begin to identify yourself <clears throat> or your own worth by the kind of people or the kind of reactions that people give you and you then fall in love with somebody and they do not reciprocate that that emotion you can begin to see that as uh, destructive of your own self-image or whatever. But it doesn't seem as though 
love in and of itself is the problem there. It's misuse of love or use of it as some sort of crutch towards validation of, of your own you know, the emotion or emotional ideas of yourself or whatever, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hate to totally, I mean, get too uh, robotic about it, but I, honestly, um, I mean, when they do study people who say they're in love, it's it's really... I believe oxytocin is the chemical that's released in the brain that's related to love, that, which you can find in a pill <laughs> nowadays. But um, it's, it really can't, it, it really is uh, a chemical reaction. I don't see any, I've never seen any evidence of it being spiritual whatsoever. And, and Doesn't ecstasy cause that effect, GD? Um, I'm not sure. I haven't really looked at that. I, I Probably. I mean, drugs uh, it do cause releases in the brain at unnatural times, so, so probably. Right. Well, you're, fami- you're familiar with the whole Dan Dennett stance approach to, like, to, are you? No, no, I can't say that I am. What do you mean? Yeah. Basically, Dan Dennett had this idea. Dawkins actually went into it in The God Delusion. He was talking about... Uh, the shortcuts, the means by which we actually, you know, discern the value or outcome of a certain situation. And what he said was there are three primary ones, physical, the physical stance, the, what is it, the design stance, and the intention stance. And the physical one is you could look at an alarm clock and, for example, look at the wiring and figure out whatever and actually mechanistically figure out that it was set to do a certain thing. Or you could look at the alarm clock press a few things and go, based on previous experience and various other things, it's reasonable to assume the alarm clock is going to do this. And when you look at love or you love a hum- look at human emotion, what you're talking about is, yeah, you can go into the mechanisms of how the brain works at a certain time, or you can look at the manifest behaviors, the ostensible, actual manifestation of somebody's emotion and act within those realms. And yes, they're both, they're both valid in many circumstances, because if you look at the the, a large data set of people doing a certain thing, you can still say, okay, well, this is, it's reasonable to assume that this is going to happen even if you don't know on the chemical level what's going on. And yeah, you, you can say you don't believe that love is a magical, spiritual, whatever, but I, I'd be completely behind you. But the manifestation of it is still as, as harmful or as uh, proficient in some circumstances as it always would be. If you know what I mean, so it's it seems like a moot point. If you know what I mean, what I'm saying, because it's it's ultimately not a huge deal whether it's whether you call it spiritual, whether you call it magical, or whether you call it chemical reaction, the outcome is the same. Right. Well, you know, go ahead, Jeannie. Well, I was just gonna say that it, you're right. What you're saying is true, but I, for the most part, but I would I would say if people do understand that, it, their approach becomes a little different, and they're not. If you're not over, over romanticizing these things, you can approach it in a more reasonable way. That yeah, that's my point with it. I'm not saying love doesn't exist. I say yeah, of course it does. It's, I mean, how we define it is different linguistically for everyone, really. But um, the emotion does exist, uh, but it is temporary and it is it does fluctuate. We see that and. Uh, I'm, completely, I'm completely for a logical evaluation of it, though. I completely agree with you. I'm just kind right. of making that. 
Well, there's I, another. I think that would help okay. monogamous relationships actually if people understood that because they wouldn't be so inclined to, you know, just oh, well, I guess we're not in love anymore. We'll fuck him, right? And it's fine. I, mean, I agree. Have to. Oh, sorry for the language. No, that's fine. Well, you know, there's another aspect to consider about this, and this goes back into Venus Project principles: is that what people define love as is often culturally based, or, or you know, even worse, you know, just like the way you're raised, like. Um, I think a lot of the problems that my wife had w- were based on the fact that her mother was a terrible person, and that during the critical phases of your of your of when your personality is forming, um, that that love you know and and relation is is created in who you are and your personality and what you relate to when you feel love, you know, for her was was something that was really damaged and messed up. You know, it's it's just like the development of anything else. You know, you get the the battered wife syndrome. You know the 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 daughter of an abusive father who grows up to find an abusive husband uh, who saw that um, you know that that this is how men and women interact because that's the way it was in the, her family so therefore that's what she came to expect now this is not always the case I mean like for example my mother um, you know had a terrible childhood but she managed to rise above it so it is possible to overcome these things. But in many cases, what we associate love with has to do with our early influences. You know, I was, as I said earlier, a hopeless romantic when I was a kid. You know, I was always into that classic storybook love stuff. And man, did that get me in all sorts of trouble when I was exposed to the real world. You know, (laughs) there's things to think about. It's just that, you know, what we define love as is so largely dependent on, you know, our, you know, and also just what you can expect from love is totally culturally based. You know, because, you know, in, in these old-fashioned societies we're talking about, the idea that you're raising the kids and, and, and making having dinner on the table was not just your job. It was an expression of love to be a good cook for your husband, to be pretty for your husband. It was an expression of love to be a good provider for your wife. You know, and, and nowadays it seems as though because those, like we said, the, the purpose of these relationships has gone away, like we said in the last article, uh, along with that, ha- has also gone the purpose for love. What is it now? You know, and it doesn't surprise me at all that people are really confused because it, it doesn't really have the same purpose that it used to. Now it's just it's it's just like anything else. People ride it, you know, to enjoy it, and then when it burns out, they throw it away. Yeah, that I think relates to the consumeristic sort of culture we've developed as well. Quick satisfaction. Get it. Move on. Get the next one and get it and move on get the next one. Okay, James, you said you had a question? Just on what you were saying there a few minutes ago, would it stand to reason kind of as a result of that, that it's almost as though the introduction of, as you were saying, like the dependence factor almost, you could call it, like the the wife providing food or children or taking care of the children or whatever is almost an expression of love for the for the husband um, and likewise for the husband's provisions of money or security or whatever it seems as though as independence is introduced and the woman is no longer in that circumstance it's almost as though independence is antithetical to the old notions of love it's not antithetical to a full stop because there's always going to be benefits but if the foundation of your relationship or your expression of the love is going to be providing someone with some something that they can't get for themselves when they can get it for themselves you're going to be in big trouble because they're going to start asking why you're around right for sure um 
Now, uh, Matt, do you have anything to add? Not at this time. What about you, Doug? No, I think we've pretty much exhausted my capability to contribute on this topic. <laughs> well, then I guess what we'll have to ask you to do then is to engineer superior relationships. you think you can do that? <laughs> no, I don't think biology works that way, and I don't even want to go down that transhuman path. I think uh, I don't want to go into the cyber generation. Thanks. No. You could uh, you could take the garage door approach and maybe you just hit it with a hammer a few times. I could. Well, it wasn't the door. I hit I hit the the door on the car with the hammer. Uh, the door oh, well. itself was fine. It was the oh. car that got hosed. You know, I'm, I'm going to make a you – know, the funny thing is that was a joke, but I'm going to steer it back on topic is that when you think about it, that was another value that's changed a lot. And depending on where you are culturally, that that's exactly what was expected of the man if the relationship was not going well, would be that he'd essentially take a hammer, so to speak, and, you know, beat up the relationship to try to get things to work, even though they're not, just to basically, well, you know, it doesn't matter now because what do you dislike more, me beating you up or the problems that we have, the incompatibilities that we have? You know, and in, in some cultures, like in certain South American countries, if your wife insults you, it's still legal to kill them. You know, these are the things that they did to try to keep this archaic relationship system working. So we're now down to the last 90 seconds of the show. Um, it's been great having all of you guys on. Um, you know, so everybody say goodbye. <laughs> goodbye, everyone. Have a great evening. Good night. Good night, everyone. Take care. Bye, everybody. Shout out to Ohio. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to V Radio. I will leave us with some parting words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. Please visit v-radio.org. Thank you. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio. Not anymore, you're not. Oh, we are gone. Peace out. We're still on, actually. Nice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so many, Ooh, so really yeah. professional, guys. Yeah. Hey. hey. I tried to click the end. Uh, okay, show's on but not streaming. It still won't let me end the show. You know, this is Roxanne Meadows. This is Doc Go. You, you really are listening to V-Radio. You're still listening to V-Radio, in fact. Please, please stop listening to V Radio. <laughs> stop listening to V Radio. <laughs> All right, I'm just gonna. I think you could probably get that quote out of Jacques fairly easy too. This is Jacques <laughs> Fresco. Please stop listening to V Radio. Oh no, he likes my show. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't making that insinuation, Neil. Come on. No, that's fine. I'm just teasing. <laughs> I, I do have one way that'll end the show though, and I'm, I'm, what I'm going to do is just hang up with Blog Talk Radio. Thank you. Thanks again, everybody, and I'll talk to you later. <laughs>